first of all, I want to say I'm so sorry for being late. That is a me problem. I was a guest on the Thousand and One Records podcast. Um, apparently, there was a book written about a thousand and one records you should listen to before you die. I was chosen to discuss the Slipknot record, which I'm not a fan of, and had to finish that up. We are here. We are so ready to go. We have the original crew here tonight. Great. Like Dr. Jack is an OG guest. Dr. Jack has been coming on this show for the last four years. He's from the Bay. That'd be a great show. Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, here for another episode of This Revolution Podcast. If you are new to the channel, thank you guys for checking this out. Normally, we're not late. Glad to have you here with us. If you are a returning guest, thank you for coming back. If you haven't done it, please hit like, please hit subscribe. It's a passive gesture that goes a long way. Let's bring in the man, the myth, the legend. He is the man of the Mau Mau Hour, my co-host, the Pascal Robert. I'm sure people are very happy to have you back. And let's quickly bring in the voice of reason. The voice of reason on the show happens to be female. She is the M2 song. Hello, hello. This is going to be a good one. We have uh, we have the trifecta of awesomeness. Pascal Toussaint and Dr. Jack. It's already February, and soon we'll see both Joe Biden and Donald Trump proclaim they are the true allies of the working class. Stump speeches will be profiled on mainstream media, broken down in depth on left-leaning media. But can the working class truly call either party a friend their cause? Let us not forget it was Joe Biden and the Dems who broke the rail road workers and trump's first move in office was to give a massive tax break with one percent did those tax breaks lead to more jobs has joe biden really created 14 million jobs this time in office recently many applauded the power of the teamsters in the ups victory and now just a few months later ups is looking at mass layoffs what would another democratic term mean for labor and what would a return to Trump do for the gains that we've seen labor make? To help us dissect this issue, our good friend, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Dr. Jack, Welcome. thank you for joining us. Good evening. Um, you have your serious face on today, so we are going to get right down to it. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us, uh, joining us again. First off, in these presidential debates, we hear uh, the back and forth of employment statistics. I know you have a feeling about stats in general. I think you, like us here on TIR, see them as a deceitful tactic to fool the public. In your latest piece, you talk about the sacrosanct nature of U.S. government statistics. Can you tell the audience about the U.S. jobs report? Also, um, has President Biden done realistically 
Um, what, what has he done realistically in the realm of job creation? Okay, well, when you talk about jobs, uh, the government puts out uh, two reports uh, at the same time, two, two surveys. One survey is called the Current Establishment Survey. And not really a survey, it's kind of like a partial uh, population census. Uh, it's, it's the large companies, about 400,000 or so of them uh, report, send in uh, information every month to the uh, uh, Commerce Department, Labor Department. Okay, that's, that's the one survey. But the point there is uh, large businesses, predominantly. And there's some indication that the participation even of large businesses has uh, declined significantly in recent years. But let's say 400,000 or so. Uh, then there's a separate survey, which is a true survey. The Labor Department uh, conducts every month. It actually calls employers and it calls people. Uh, now, that picks up more of the small businesses, small companies. Uh, so they're really looking at, uh, you know, two different populations. And what comes out of those two different surveys on jobs is a, sometimes a totally different picture. Uh, the point that I want to make at the get-go here is that um, uh, these are statistics. What's a statistic? Uh, it's a manipulation of the actual raw data and the numbers. You know, they perform certain methodologies on the raw data and they have a whole bunch of assumptions uh, and then they come out with a statistic. You know, most people think it's an actual number of uh, truth and fact. It's not. That's not what a statistic is. Having said that, uh, back to these two surveys. Uh, one large business, one predominantly smaller businesses and households, right? The second one's called the Current Population Survey, or sometimes called the Household Survey. Well, if you look at uh, the differences in terms of uh, jobs created last year, in the first survey, you get this 353,000 jobs last month, right? Mm. Created new jobs. And over the year, uh, 3.1 million claimed by Biden, the year meaning 2023. So hold those figures, 3.1 million, 353,000 latest month, January. Well, if you look at the other survey, the population survey, it's a, it's a different picture. If you look at the total level of employment from the end of last year to the end of well, actually, the end of 2022 to the end of 2023, and then you add uh, January. If you look at that total employment, in other words, the jobs are created, you know, in the economy, total employment, you see a much different picture. You see only uh, 820,000 jobs created, which is uh, oh, about 80,000 a month on average, instead of 300,000 a month on average in in the other survey. That's a very large difference. And. Uh, you know, for for the uh, the year, it's eighty to twenty thousand, but uh, there's a big negative uh, for for January. So, the point is, uh, which one are you going to believe? Mm -hmm. You know, they're different surveys, they have different methodologies, a different database that they're looking at. One big business, one smaller business, right? Uh, but the media cherry picks. That's one of the main points I try to make. Uh, it cherry picks the best number, mm -hmm. and it throws out that number. Uh, that 353,000, that's what you get, you know, in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and on the media, and so forth. They don't mention the other one, mm -hmm. you know, the, the news isn't that great. 
uh, and most of the jobs we created are part-time to the extent they are. Uh, so, uh, you know, pick your poison, I guess, is the, is the point. Either 3.1 million, 353,000, or 820,000 in, in a negative uh, decline in jobs last, last month. The same thing you can say about uh, the unemployment rate, right? Uh, the unemployment rate is uh, determined by the second survey, CPS. Uh, but you can look at unemployment among full-time workers. There's about 120 million full-time workers in this country. We have a total labor force of about 167 million. So about 46, 47 million are part-time temp, uh, independent contractors, you know, they say they're in business, but they don't hire anybody. They're sort of self-employed, unincorporated, right? If you look at all the other other workers, you know, those who dropped out of the labor force, those who haven't uh, uh, looked for a job in the last four weeks, you see that figure 3.7 yeah. is full-time, and you have, have to have looked for a job in the last four weeks. If you didn't look for five weeks, well, then you're not counted. And if you haven't looked for a while, you're not counted. And if you drop out, you're definitely not counted. Uh, so you look at another table in the CPS. One table at A1 will tell you it's 3.7% uh, unemployment. That's the one with the assumptions I just gave you. Mm -hmm. The other one, which is a broader, you know, everybody, not just full-time looking last four weeks, uh, you get 8% unemployment. 3% versus 8%. I mean, it's all there in the government statistics. It's not as if they're lying. It's all there. Uh, but which one you're going to cherry pick? You see, and the media cherry picks the one that makes the, you know, their their friends in government look good. Uh, so I keep pointing that out. There, there are other problems, you know, even with the 353,000. Here's here's just one problem with it. Um, as I said earlier, uh, those large corporations send that information to. Uh, of jobs to the company, I mean, to, to the labor department, right? They send the information in, labor department gathers, now that's raw data. That's, you know, the big companies say, well, we hired this many people. Here's, you know, our figures. Uh, but then what the labor department does is that it goes to a totally separate source that's called new business formations. Uh, new businesses start up hundreds of thousands every month, hundreds of thousands go out of business every month. It's, it's a big economy. Uh, the government goes and looks at that new business formation, makes an assumption of how many people are typically hired when a new business is formed. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a plug-in number, that assumption. They you know, continue it for years. <laughs> and then they say, well, you know, how many people, how many businesses failed, you know, and how many were in them when they failed? Well, there's data for how many businesses started a new business. You know, when you start a business, you got to file with your secretary of state, your state, right? Uh, but when you go out of business, you just go away. You know, no one files, oh, I went out of business, right? So they have no idea how many businesses actually failed. It's a historical assumption, historical average, nor the number of workers in it. So what they're doing is they're saying, oh, net business formation, when they don't have information for those businesses that went out of business, just those that started, they plug in a number, and then they take that information, that database, and they add it to the database 
of the big companies reporting and they merge those two databases and then they do statistical operations on it, seasonality and so forth. And that's the number they come up with. That's the 353,000. Now, the problem with that new business formation database is that the information they're taking is six to nine months before it's lagged six to nine months. So they're taking a whole bunch of data six months ago and adding it to the data the big companies send them and they're merging them and doing manipulations on them. And it comes out 353,000. Now I think there's a problem with that, you know, uh, but that's how it's done. And there's a lot of manipulations like that going on in the numbers for jobs, for, for inflation as well, uh, for wages and so forth that average person isn't, isn't aware of. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's not exciting bed, bedside reading. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think it's very important because you mentioned, you mentioned unemployment. I really want to get back to the unemployment numbers because this is a number that's often floated. Yeah. When you get, get unemployment numbers, it's never really mentioned in the analysis. And you mentioned it, the labor participation rates versus general numbers of unemployment. Why is it we never get an analysis of what labor participation rates are? Can you explain the differentiation between labor participation rates and unemployment? Yeah, labor labor force participation rate is uh, just the number of uh, of uh, workers who are, are actually in the labor force. You see, um, the civilian labor force is made up of those who are actually working or looking for work. Right? You've got to be out of work looking for work or you got to be working. That's the 167 million. Now there's a, who knows how many millions of workers there are who have just given up. They've quote, mm -hmm. dropped out of the labor force or they're part of what the government calls the missing labor force or discouraged workers, right? Uh, so labor force participation rate kind of measures uh, what's the ratio of those who are actually working, looking for work and the total that could be employed and looking for work. Uh, and if that goes up, you know, uh, that means, well, the economy must be doing pretty good because, you know, a lot of people are, are in, right? They've entered the labor force, you know, about 100,000 every month, new people join the labor force, you know, they just become of age. Uh, so if the labor force participation rate, which is around 62% and so, uh, is low, uh, that means people have given up on the economy and they're kind of out of there. But by the way, when you're out of there, you're not, not in that calculation for unemployment rate. You just totally drop out, you see. Now, if we added the 5 million, I don't know how many now, uh, who've dropped out into it, the unemployment rate would, you know, double, triple. Uh, they don't count them purposely. Uh, so... It's a pretty important thing uh, that that labor force participation rate kind of crashed uh, in 2008, 9, 10, recovered a little bit and took a big whack, to, you know, with COVID. All, all these job statistics uh, and statistics in general have been, uh, uh, you know, really uh, turned upside down because of COVID and, and what happened. There. I don't I, I think there's a problem in a lot of the statistics because of what happened with COVID. Uh, but that's another story. Uh, the the point is it's still low. You know they can't get it up. They got the labor force participation up a little bit, uh, but it's not that strong. And if it remains weak, it's kind of another indicator that the labor market is not so great. 
Um, you mentioned in a talk you were giving with the it was the International Socialists. It was somewhere in Oakland. I can't remember what it's called. The organization is called. But you mentioned that kind of some of these labor statistics are due to the fact that um, we're still seeing an opening due to COVID because so much stuff got shut down. Um, and there's been no delineation between, oh, these are just people returning back to work that didn't have work during the shelter in place. Um, go ahead. Yeah, well, that, that let me dwell on that point. People who have returned to work. In uh, the fourth quarter of 2019, right before COVID, right, how many people did we have in the labor force um, that were full-time? Full-time. They don't have the data on the part-timers. 118,450,000 in December 2019. When COVID shutdowns hit, uh, we lost about 14 million jobs. You know, 2020 alone, 14 million jobs permanent. We lost them. They, they shut down, right? Probably around 30 million people at one time or another were unemployed uh, during 2020. I mean, it was huge, right? Uh, we didn't get back to that 118 million full-time jobs now. We put the part-time aside. We didn't get back until uh, the second quarter the summer of 2022. Now, keep in mind, uh, you know, Biden is in office for 18 months by then. Yeah. So we we gained back the 14 million that we lost since 2022. Uh, the economy has grown to about full timers now, about 121 million. So what we've done under Biden is we recover jobs lost. Uh, in other words, he didn't create those jobs. Those were jobs that got shut down and people came back to work. <laughs> but he said, oh, I created these jobs. He claims 14 million jobs he created. No, no, you can only count what you created new from the point at which you reached where you were before COVID hit and the shutdowns occurred. Well, since the summer of 2022 here, uh, there's been about 2.7 million jobs. Now, you've got to de- deduct from that the, t- the typical 100,000 people enter the labor force because they're, you know, they turn 16, 18, and whatever, right? So you can't really say I created them. They were coming in anyway, right? Uh, the point is, it's not 14 million jobs. At the very, very most over, you know, the last... Uh, 30 months, it's 2.7 million. That's, That's it. a huge difference. Yeah, you can't claim 14 million. The economy shut down and it just reopened and people came back to work. The jobs were there. They weren't created. They were there and people just, you know, came back to those jobs. Uh, so, you know, it's really spinning the narrative there. And it's really a, a, a misrepresentation that he, he created all those jobs. At the very most, he's, he's created 2.7 million, not 14. 14 million and uh that you know almost two years ago over two years the 2.7 million how would you rate here's another statistic i think people should keep in mind uh what kind of jobs what occupations uh were created where where are these these jobs and in, in what occupations right uh if you look elsewhere in the government data 
since 2007, before the Great Recession, uh, 9 million jobs in business professionals, 8 million jobs in managers, 17 million jobs, managers and professionals, you know, software engineers and whatever, right? Doctors, mm -hmm. etc. 17 million. All the other categories, production, construction, mm -hmm. office workers, they're down since 2007. They're less today than they were then. Wow. I mean, that's another fact from these government statistics that people ought to keep in mind. You know, we're, when he says we're creating jobs, uh, you're not creating jobs for the average typical worker in this country for manufacturing, you know, or, mm -hmm. or construction or, uh, you know, office work or whatever. What are you creating jobs for then? Just the gig economy and part-time work? Uh, well, yes, a lot of it is uh, part-time service jobs, right, uh, for the median and below, uh, at median income and below. And, uh, you know, the top jobs, uh, professional jobs, technical jobs, technology, you know, and management, right, mm -hmm. those are the jobs that are mostly been created. And those are mostly the full-time jobs, okay? So you see that reflected in, in the wage structure. In other words, uh, here's another statistic they claim, oh, you know, four and a half percent full-time me median wage gains, you know, four and a half percent a weekly, weekly uh, wages, uh, weekly earnings, which is wages, uh, hourly wages times hours of work. That's your earnings. That's what earnings means, weekly earnings, right? Four and a half percent. Well, that's an average, you see. That's an average for the 118 million full-time workers, which means at the very top, these jobs that are being created in management and professional services, right? They're getting more than four and a half percent, much more. Those at the bottom are getting nothing unless they're in one of the states in which they raise the minimum wage. They, they got a, a bump too which is about half of the, the, the states. Half of the states, you know, they're still at this incredible $7.25 an hour, mm -hmm. right, uh, minimum wage. And there's like 20, 25 million people down there, right? So some of them got a little boost at the bottom. At yeah. the top, they got a big boost because they're in these occupations we're talking about. Uh, but everybody else in the middle is not getting, they didn't get four and a half percent. You know, they, they're getting much less, if anything. And that's what's called the real wage, which is adjusted for inflation, which is underestimated. Inflation's underestimated. So even at four and a half percent, simply because of the inflation adjustment is uh, is not accurate. Another way to look at it is what was the real wage back in 1983? The real take home wage adjusted for inflation back in 1983, because that's the base year that the government uses. Well, it was 365, uh, $365 or $362 a week. Now, that's adjusted for inflation, all right? Mm -hmm. uh, by the fourth quarter of 2019, it was $362 again. Adjusting for inflation? Adjusted for inflation. It yeah. hasn't moved it didn't move from 83, 83 to 2019. What is it today? 
I don't know. $371. Really? So adjusted for inflation using the government's base year for adjustment, 82, 83, right? The real wage, right? The median, the median real wage, right in the middle, okay? Mm -hmm. The median. We're not talking about averages now. We're talking about median, you know, what, what they're really getting, right? Mm -hmm. The group, uh, you know, 50% plus one, the median. $9, $9 raise per week. If you're a full-time worker, part-time is probably worse. Uh, since 2019, $9. Now, you know, we hear all this talk. Uh, in the belt line there about, uh, oh, gee, these statistics, the economy is so good. Why isn't all these polls show that people don't agree with us? The people, you know, <laughs> believe out there that, hell, you know, it's not so great. There's this 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 big, uh, I don't know, split between what the politicians think, right, based on their selective statistics that they cherry pick and what the real world people out there the rest of us are really experiencing and they can't figure out why they don't, uh, you know, they're saying, oh, well, gee, maybe we need to educate them better. You don't need to educate them. They know what the hell they're paying for and what they're making. Right? <laughs> so uh, that's a reflection of it. You know, uh, Biden says, oh, we brought inflation down the last six months. Well, people were thinking about, you know, the last three years and even the CPI, which is underestimated inflation, is up 22 percent. That's what they're remembering. They're remembering, you know, I'm paying 22% more. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my rent went up 50%. Yeah. You know, uh, when I go and repair my car, it's twice the amount <clears throat> that I was paying. My auto insurance is up uh, 60%. Um, food is up. Uh, this is what they're remembering, you know. This is what inflation means to, to, to the real people out there. It's not this number that the government spins and tries to say, oh, you know, it's a great world. The economies are doing very well. Anyway, that's the reality on real wages for at the median, which is the real working class, right? I mean, you can't say, you know, it's the underclass and you can't say, it's, you know, the upper class. That's the median. That's the core of the working class. And that's about people making, what, 50,000 or some a year. Um, there's been no increase for decades, no increase in real take home income for decades. Dr. Jack, do you think there's been actually any real recovery since the 2008 crash? Did you say recovery since the Biden crash? Is the 2008, 2008. 2008. Well, my thesis, I wrote a book back then in 2010 mm -hmm. um, called Epic Recession prelude to uh, global depression. And uh, I took issue with uh, mainstream economists like Paul Krugman, who said, oh, this is the great, this is a great recession, you know, and I didn't like uh, calling it a great recession, because uh, all that really meant was, you know, forecasting by adverbs, meaning it was worse than a normal recession and not yet a depression. Well, that doesn't explain anything, right? So I wrote a book that tried to describe uh, that event, 2008 and 9, uh, in terms of uh, a, a bigger context, uh, and that we had seen epic recessions. I call it epic recession to uh, distinguish it from, from Crudman's nonsense. Uh, and an epic, we've seen epic recessions before, 
and I and I my argument was uh, 2008 9 uh, is was an epic recession, and what's happened since is part of that same epic recession. I'll explain why. If you look at uh, 1907 to 1913, that was an epic recession. We had a financial crash, and the recovery was weak, and it was punctuated by short, shallow recoveries, and then you know, uh, brief downturns, even small, mild, double-dip recessions, and then short, shallow recoveries and deep downturns and so forth. That went on for six years. But it recovered, finally, with a massive fiscal spending of World War I. We had another epic recession in 1929. If you look at 1929 and 30, uh, it wasn't, we didn't fall into the hole of depression. Uh, what happened was uh, we, we had a pretty severe contraction in manufacturing and construction, but not in the rest of the economy for about a year and a half. And then the banks started failing. We had a banking crash in 1930, another one in 31, another one in 32, another one in 33. And each time we had those crashes, the economy went deeper and deeper into depression. So my argument was an epic recession uh, is somewhere between a depression and a normal recession that if you have a financial instability event like a banking crash, you could slip into a bona fide depression. Uh, but if you are able to avoid another financial crash, you might be able to bump along for a while at subnormal growth. And if you look at the period under uh, Obama, that's exactly what happened. We had the big contraction of 2008-9. The recovery was very weak. And for uh, the next six, seven years under Obama, uh, what happened was we were bouncing along, uh, you know, the bottom we had weak recoveries and you know we had a double dip there in 2015 i believe uh and then we have another weak recovery and so forth we didn't get the same level of jobs we had in 2007 back until 2015. so it was like seven years of uh you know less than normal jobs uh, sometimes that's going and it wasn't the, the same and it wasn't the same type of jobs i mean no a lot it was lower paid there's, there's a lot of data yeah. shows the jobs that were lost were permanently were were higher paid and the jobs replaced were lower lower paid so you know that that weak subnormal about two-thirds of a normal recovery from recession that occurred under obama was really part of that epic recession you know yeah. it's sort of like the aftermath of that is that recession now, I'm saying uh, the COVID contraction uh, is a repeat of 2008-9 in some ways, because what we got now is another weak recovery. Yeah, it's been very weak. Look, in 2020, 2021, the economy contracted. The first two years of post-COVID recovery uh, is 2022 and 2023. What did we see? for GDP growth in 22 and 23. Well, I think we got like a 1.9, if I'm correct, in 22, and a 2.5 for last year. Those are subnormal growth recoveries, and especially subnormal, listen to this, because the stimulus we threw at it in 21, 2021 was $9 trillion. Mm. We threw $9 trillion. In 2008, nine, we, we threw about four and a half trillion and got that weak recovery. Well, this time we threw 
twice as much in terms of government spending, fiscal policy, tax cuts and spending, and the Fed $5 trillion injection into the economy of money, $9 trillion total, and what did we get? Barely a 2% GDP in 22 and 23 combined. That tells me something's broke. Something's broke about fiscal monetary policy. It is not generating the recovery that it used to generate. And we're throwing even more money at it, uh, and we're getting less bang for the buck. So bottom line, I'm saying we are still in this trajectory of a weak recovery, ability to recover very weakly from these severe contractions like the Great Recession and the COVID contraction and recession. Dr. Rasmus, do you think that we've come out of the shadow of neoliberalism? Are we still in the shadow of neoliberalism? Oh, we're right in the middle of it. Uh, you know, I wrote a book in 2020 explaining, you know, my view of what neoliberalism is, introduced, uh, you know, at first under Jimmy Carter and then uh, Ronald Reagan ran with it big time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then ever since then, all these uh presidential regimes have been neoliberal. If you look at what is neoliberalism in economic policy, it's uh, really, if you look at four sectors, fiscal policy, monetary policy, industrial policy, and uh, external trade currency exchange rate policy. Those are the four policies, right, that are neoliberal. Uh, And they are called neoliberal because that mix is different than it was uh, before the 1970s. The 1970s mix, the pre, you know, post-war, World War II broke down in the 70s, and we had an economic crisis in the 70s. Neoliberalism is a response to that crisis in the 70s, and the policies of neoliberalism are basically uh, runaway defense and more spending, uh, tax cuts for corporations and investors, uh, austerity for social programs, hold the lid on social programs. That's fiscal policy. Forget about the deficits and debt that it creates. Monetary policy is long run, keep interest rates low. Uh, and of course, in QE and all that stuff, throw money you know, in, in bucket loads at the economy. Industrial policy is privatization, deregulation, and compress wages and uh, destroy unions. And uh, external policy is uh, uh, go and beat up your competitors, you know, (laughs) whether it's, uh, uh, you know, trade and goods flows and free trade is part of all that. And and, uh, the dollar as the dominant currency, make sure it remains that way. And browbeat uh, Japan in the 80s and Europe in the 90s and, uh, you know, go after uh, Russia and China uh, now. Uh, That's the external policy. Those four elements are still very strong under Biden. Look at it. You know, uh, we're now facing uh, a trillion dollar uh, defense budget. Well, actually, defense is already over trillion. I'm talking about Pentagon budget. We just gave the Pentagon $83 billion more, and now we got this bill going through Congress here uh, for the border. It's really a war aid bill with $91 billion more for war. Uh, you got to add that on top, you know, uh, on top of the 83 billion. So we're close to a trillion dollars now. Next, next, next budget cycle for the Pentagon. Now there's maybe two, three hundred billion more that uh, is really defense related, but it's not in the Pentagon budget. All right. So, I mean, he's he's uh, taking the lid off of defense and more spending. He Biden, right? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, look at the tax cuts. The Democrats would not reduce Trump's $4 trillion tax cuts. That was very clear. You know, Manchin and Cinema made sure that that never got into any, any of the legislation. And uh, there's no one in the Democrat National Committee that really wants to repeal any of the Bush tax cuts, right? Because they're corporate people too. They love, they love the, uh, I mean, the Trump taxes. They love the Trump tax cuts, right? And now they're pa passing even more tax cuts. Right? So fiscal policy, Biden, very neoliberal. In fact, you know, on steroids. Monetary policy, well, they raised interest rates some uh, because uh, of the inflation. You know, they're trying desperately to get back to low interest rates. They'll get back to it. Uh, unions, well, you know, wages, they've, uh, look, the first, first thing Biden did when he got in office, what was the first meeting he had? It was with CEOs of the big corp companies. First meeting he had in, in January 21 was with the CEOs. What did he tell him? He said, there won't be any minimum wage increase on my watch. Wow. First thing he said, of course, during his running, he was, he was promising everybody minimum wage, minimum wage, right? I mean, they say what you, what you want to hear and they get you voted. They do what the hell they want in their campaign finances, ask them to do, right? Uh, we have uh, all kinds of problems with uh, the regional banking system because of deregulation. You know, he hasn't really done much there to do anything about that. Uh, it's and then you look at external what's going on. Well, the Biden administration is presiding over over the destruction of uh, the U.S. dollar as the global trading and reserve currency. It's about to end this year right? when the BRICS meet. Uh, the dollar will no longer be dominant. Uh, and, uh, of course, the, the sanctions policy is causing a bifurcation in the global economic empire right now. He's splitting it. Uh, so external policy is a total failure as well. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a continuation. Those four areas are neoliberalism. Now, you could talk about it, and we won't, how the political system is being restructured to accommodate neoliberal policies continuing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's another whole question here. Uh, but to answer your question in summary, uh, uh, Biden is neoliberalism. Yes, without a doubt. Well, what happens if the dollar is no longer the, the currency of record? Well, if it's not the, the dominant currency, the value of the dollar uh, declines. Right, it falls. I'm it here in Mexico, yeah. There's no, there's not as much demand for the dollar, right? Mm. Uh, no one wants the dollar as much because they don't need it to uh, buy and sell oil and commodities and so forth. They're gonna, you know, go for whatever the currency the BRICS come up with, right? So the demand for the dollar uh, declines, which means the price and value of the dollar uh, will decline. De decline, uh, and then if the dollar is declining in value. Uh, the whole empire's key, one of the key elements of uh, the U.S. economic empire is the agreements to recycle dollars back to the U.S. The U.S. purposely runs a trade deficit, purposely with the rest of the world, which means dollars have been flowing out of the U.S., accumulating in the rest of the world for decades now. But the understanding has been uh, between the U.S. and these other countries, particularly, you know, the Middle East and the Saudis, that uh, they're going to recycle these dollars back to the U.S. and buy treasury bonds. 
right? They're mm. going to invest in other things. The money will be recycled. For decades, since 1974, we've uh, uh, allowed... Uh, uh, the Saudis in, in the Middle East to charge us, so overcharges for oil, which means the dollars flow out, but the Saudis and others recycle it back and they buy, uh, you know, jet aircraft and they buy treasury bonds and they buy other assets and so forth. So the money comes back to the U.S. If the money doesn't come back to the U.S., which it won't when the dollar declines in value, if it doesn't come back to the U.S., how are we going to pay this trillion, two trillion dollar annual budget deficit? Mm -hmm. The way we fund that budget deficit, right, is that the Treasury sells bonds. This money comes back and buys bonds. It comes back to the U.S. Treasury. So that's how we cover uh, that trillion dollar plus annual deficit every year. Now, if the money is not coming back, how are we going to cover that? Is the next question. Well, you're going to have to raise taxes, or maybe you're going to have to cut, you know, all this uh, military spending. Uh, because well, you they can't... cut federal programs before they cut military. Well, oh yeah, but, but it's, there's not enough in federal programs to make up for that trillion, trillion and a half every year. There's just not well, enough. You can't. What do it. then happens? Well, you know, we have a super chat we want to get to, but before we get to that, what then happens? You know, this is our make-believe scenario, right? The dollar is no longer the currency of record, and you have to cut military spending. What then happens with relationships a la AFRICOM and uh, relationship with Israel? Well, the U.S. has to pull back militarily. You know, it can't afford uh, uh, spending that much money to protect its empire uh, militarily. And there is a U.S. global economic empire. There's no doubt about that, right? But it costs money to run an empire, right? So if you don't have enough money coming back, uh, you've got this big budget uh, deficit that's even larger than what we have now, but we've been covering it, you see, with that money coming back. Uh, I mean, the Japanese and Chinese have bought, you know, trillions. They had over a trillion dollars in, in you know, U.S. Treasury assets. The problem is that the, the Chinese, because we're going after them, have been cutting their purchases of treasuries and government securities. They used to have like 1.1 trillion or something. Now it's down to 800 billion. They're cutting it, cutting it, right? Mm -hmm. And the Japanese are even cutting it. And everybody's cutting it because they're worried these sanctions mean that uh, uh, if they're holding dollars, uh, the U.S. just may grab those dollars, you know, like they grabbed 300 billion from the Russians, right? Mm -hmm. No one wants the another reason why they won't want to hold dollars. Uh, so this is a big, big problem. This is a crack in the empire uh, going on that's been accelerated because of the Ukraine war and uh, the Middle East wars and uh, the sanctions and so forth. <clears throat> They're undermining themselves. Joe Biden is shooting himself in the foot. He's shooting the empire in the foot here because these policies, actually it's the neocons who are too stupid to understand any of this, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, basically, um, it means they're undermining their own empire. Because if the dollar falls in value, which it will, once the BRICS and end of the year come up with a new currency mm -hmm. and a new international payment system and a new form of IMF, mm -hmm. you know, and World Bank, well, they already have the new World Bank. <laughs> you know, it's called Belt and Road. Uh, so... When all that happens, the demand for the dollar, right now, you know, you need dollars to buy uh, buy and sell most of the oil in the world. This mm -hmm. is 
wholehearted agreement with the Saudis you know, back in 74. You need you, you need dollars. You've got to buy dollars in order to buy oil. 80% of the oil is still traded in dollars. The same with a lot of other commodities. You know, once you start trading in other currencies, right, there's not so much demand for the dollar anymore. You don't need the dollar to buy oil anymore or other industrial commodities. If you don't uh, demand buy dollars in all these, these global dollar markets, right? Well, then the value is simple supply and demand. The demand goes down, the value of the dollar goes down. If the dollar goes down, then once again, who wants to buy dollars to buy treasuries? Because if I buy dollars and treasuries, my value of, of my assets going to collapse. So, you know, I don't want to do it. Will any of this spark some sort of uh, conflict as far as a world war? I mean, the U.S. does kind of control the seas. We're talking about oil and wanting to buy it and trying to ship it. You know, now we're, we're talking about. Well, let's, let's just say, uh, you know, the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India and China and South Africa. Right. Mm -hmm. That was this this coalition that started. Uh, they just added five new members. All oil producing countries. All oil producing, including the Saudis and the UAE and Egypt and all those in the Middle East, they're all Saudi countries. They have 34 countries, in addition, that have applied for a membership to the BRICS that will be added to during the course of this year. There'll be a big meeting at the end of the year in Russia because Putin now is chair of the BRICS, right? Mm -hmm. There'll be a meeting and they'll add even more people they'll come up with an alternative currency uh, arrangement and an international payment system arrangement at that time as well. 2025, 2025 is going to be a, a, a year of disaster from the U.S. global empire, economic so we, empire. And yes, the U.S. On, on the show. But one of the things I think that Jason is saying that is very important, I as, as much as we may, you know, applaud the potential for African sovereign independence that comes out of the BRICS or the ability of the global South to negotiate transactions independent of the IMF and the World Bank. At the bottom line reality, no one knows how the West is going to react from this and no one can assure anyone that the West is not going to stop from reacting violently. Well, one thing we could see already happening, happening is that uh, the U.S. is uh, circling the wagons with its most uh, reliable allies, economic political allies, the G7, G7 plus Australia, right, G8, right? Uh, they're circling the wagons, uh, and uh, that's, the, in other words, they're, they're kind of uh, building up the core again, the core of the empire. Uh, and then they will react as a group uh, to whatever uh, the BRICS do at the end of this year. There will be a period of uh, intense competition in many, many forms. Uh, there'll be a group uh, of uh, independent countries that'll try to play both against the middle. I mean, they won't drop the dollar and uh, go just for, with the BRICS. Uh, they'll play both, both sides, you know. But what that means is that uh, the U.S. is not a unipolar world unipolar, uh, uh, you know, global hegemon anymore. Uh, it, it now has to maneuver, uh, not only with the BRICS, but the rest of the world. Uh, 
can it do that uh, cleverly through diplomacy and economic power, or will it resort to uh, uh, military action? Well, if the neocons continue to run foreign policy, the, the possibility is the latter, right? Uh, but their wars aren't going so well uh, so far, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, they're going to lose Ukraine, uh, at least most of it, no doubt about it. Um, doesn't seem to be any solution uh, for U.S. interests in, in the Middle East right now. Uh, the U.S. is preparing a kind of a Pacific NATO and uh, is, is challenging China, which is, you know, the bigger the biggest challenger. But the U.S. may be so damn weak, it's the economy by the time it tries to take on China that it's, a, you know, it's, it's a lost cause. Uh, I don't think that they can resort to military action uh, given the level of, uh, of military uh, power of the U.S. Any, anymore uh, and the cost of it. You know, I mean, wars cost a lot of money and the U.S. Uh, is really, uh, you know, in debt because of what, what we've spent since uh, 2001, what, eight, nine trillion dollars on wars. Jesus. Pretty much eight, nine trillion. The estimates are Brown University. Right. Uh, at the same time, we've given... $15 trillion in tax cuts to corporations and investors. Never in our history have we run a war without raising taxes. But here we massively cut taxes while we massively increase spending. Well, that's why you got $34 trillion deficit, right? Your tax revenue is 60% of why you have deficits. Well, you can't give $15 trillion away in tax cuts uh, and not have a deficit ballooning up. And you can't spend $9 trillion without adding to that ballooning deficit. And that pretty much, uh, in, in between, you got to bail out people during the Great Recession and during COVID. That adds more to it as well. Well, there's your $34 trillion. Pascal, you want to follow? So, again, do we really believe that China wants to be the global hegemon and the reality that we're seeing right now? Or would it not, wouldn't it really go along with the United States maintaining a certain position of power play but with this being but with china being respected as a kind of secondary agent if you will i don't well, see z Jinping as wanting to replace you know uh washington dc as the global metropole in, in, in uh in china's capital uh well i think china's playing a very long game you know china is not ready to take on the u.s uh, economically or militarily and, the, and they know it uh, they're they're coming on very strong, but they're playing a long-term game. Uh, they don't want a conflict with the U.S., I don't think. Uh, they are building allies, uh, you know, in Africa and Asia and elsewhere in the world economically, right? Uh, their military uh, is really not quite a match for the U.S. unless it's in a totally defensive role, you know, in, uh, in, in Asia. Uh, so the Chinese, I don't think, want to become a hegemon, right? They want to continue what they're doing because it's working. And they're playing a, you know, a long game. They're looking at the decade or more going ahead. And by the way, they really think that the, the, the key to future military uh, uh, power and political power is uh, technology, you know, particularly artificial uh, intelligence and other technologies which have tremendous military value, which will allow them to leapfrog uh, the U.S. militarily, they're betting on that in the next next decade. And that's why the U.S. is going after China technologically, 
Uh, Trump tried to do it through tariffs, didn't work. Uh, Biden's trying to do it just with embargoing China and blocking them from doing business, you know, in the West. Uh, so there's a tech war going on between the U.S. and China since 2018, no doubt. Uh, we almost got into a military uh, punch up over Taiwan here. Uh, but yeah. both sides says, uh, you know, China doesn't really want that now. Not yet. Too early. And uh, the U.S. Uh, smarter uh, element said, uh, you know, we, we, we can't be embroiled uh, with NATO and Ukraine in the Middle East and take on China, too. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, Joe, uh, the U.S. just can't do that yet. Um, we do have a super chat. Uh, Toussaint, you want to read that super chat? One second. Let me pull it up. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right. This is from JB. Can Dr. Rasmus can Dr. Rasmus comment on the recent developments in the UAW? It's borderline concessionary new contracts. Finds call for five one twenty eight general strike light and then endorsing Biden after saying UAW opposed Gaza. Yeah, okay. Uh, the UAW agreement, along with uh, uh, you know, the Teamsters UPS agreement and uh, the Longshore agreement, in my view, represent uh, the first signs of a break with concession bargaining that's gone on for 40 years. Uh, that's an element of neoliberal industrial policy, concession bargaining, by the way. Uh, and it's finally looking like it's, uh, I wouldn't say be totally reversed, but, uh, you know, there are some some victories in these recent contracts, particularly uh, a big, big uh, step towards ending the, the two-tier wage system mm -hmm. and uh, other restoring COLA. You know, that was a big thing in, in the UAW contract. Uh getting a big bump uh, wage increase uh, here over uh, four, four and a half years, uh, shortening the wage progression, how long it takes to get, get to the top, um, pension increases. Uh, uh, what I see in, in the UAW was a kind of a victory. You know, it, it didn't end everything overnight. There's still some way to go. Uh, but it was a big change. I mean, the, the 2019 and prior contracts by the UAW were just terrible, terrible. I mean, the uh, the the average wage for an auto worker was like twenty dollars an hour. Well, yeah, you said the average wage uh, is less than you know. You wrote something in uh, September of last year where you said the yeah. average wage for an auto worker, union auto worker, is like eighteen dollars an hour yeah. compared to two. That was the starting wage, I think. Starting wage is eighteen. Yeah. You see, to top that at thirty-two. Yeah. Living in California. I, where, I mean, that, go ahead. That, that tells you how far the UAW backtracked over the decades. You know how far they gave up everything that they gave up. And by the way, concession bargaining begins with the UAW in nineteen seventy-nine in the Chrysler strike, and uh, the Chrysler strike ended when Jimmy Carter and Doug Fraser, who was president at the time, leaned on their own workers in Chrysler's to give up, to uh, you know, give up the coal and give up all these, these uh, gains of the previous 40 years since the formation of the UAW. And that set off concession bargaining. That, that sort of was the first big uh, visible 
uh, give back. Uh, and ever since then, unions have been giving back. But <clears throat> I and think. What do you, and what do you mean by concession bargaining? Oh, giving up the gains that you had already achieved in your contract. You know, or, uh, giving, giving up the right to strike, uh, giving up, uh, uh, you know, uh, <coughs> uh, cost of living adjustments, uh, agreeing to uh, two tier workers and a lower start wage, agreeing to stretch out the uh, wage wage uh, uh, schedule here to get to the top. There's all man agreeing to management rights expansion, <coughs> agreeing to plant closures, uh, all kinds of things. You know, I mean, all of Concession bargaining means you had these things and you give them up. You concede, you give them back. That's yeah. what concession, and that was going for 40 years. Sean Fain has endorsed Joe Biden. Is that a surprise to you? No, not at all. Uh, the labor movement, uh, you know, always uh, stays close to the apron strings of the Democrat Party, at least the leadership does, right? Is that is that for, not fear, but, you know, we saw what the Dems did to the railroad strikers, as I said. Yeah, in the yeah. Monologue. You don't you want to have that happen to you, so you endorse the president. Yeah. Well, you would think so. That would be the logical conclusion. But, uh, I mean, what are they supposed to do? Endorse uh, Donald Trump? It's kind of like, you know, you jump from the frying pan to the fire. I don't know, you know. Uh, but labor has always uh, played that game, the leadership in labor, at least, always too close to the Democratic Party, which takes uh, takes uh, labor for granted uh, and, and believes there's no place else for them to go, throws them a few crumbs every time uh, there's an election, uh, promises them, uh, uh, you know, the, the world, but never delivers anything. You know, whether it was the PRO Act under Biden or a card check under Obama, you know, anything meaningful, uh, the Democrats don't. They don't even take it out of committee, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm not surprised at all. This election year, you know, although I, I, I'll bet you that uh, probably half of, uh, of the auto workers will probably vote for Trump. Pascal, do you have anything you want to add before we go? I just want to add, I want to echo your statements on labor perennially surrendering to the Democratic Party and putting themselves in a position where they cannot use their leverage to get, extract any benefits or concessions from the party. Because if you play those kind of politics where you're, you're going to surrender out of fear regularly, you're not going to be able to get concession. Yeah, well, con there's political concession bargaining, too, you know, not just economic concession bargaining. It's true. Yeah. Well, it's a great weakness uh, of the labor movement, the union movement. It's a great weakness. You know, it's it's too too close to the Democrat Party, and it and it gets gamed, right? Uh, from time to time, some unions have uh, tried to take a more of a of an independent stance. Like the Teamsters have a long history of that, right? They they won't play that game, uh, but the Teamsters have a lot of power. You know, a lot of economic power. Uh, like the longshore workers, they have you know, transport workers still have power. Uh, a lot of the manufacturing work uh, jobs have gone offshore, uh, and it's a global manufacturing uh, labor market, so uh, they don't have the power uh, that uh, transport does. You can't move transport offshore, right? <clears throat> so we see, you know, better contracts and better conditions uh, in the transport workers' unions. <clears throat> and ever since uh, offshoring in the 80s, uh, manufacturing unions have been decimated. 
and then the service unions are usually too small uh, to really have a big impact uh, in terms of the gains. Um, before we go, there's two things we, we have to super chat before we get to the super chat. Um, what happens if there's a Trump presidency to labor, in your opinion? Well, that's a hard one to call. There, there won't be any favors given or made, that's for sure. Uh, I, I don't see anything positive for, for labor under, under Trump. I really don't. I don't see that much for the Democrats either. Yeah, <laughs> but I feel uh, you on that. Where, you yeah, know, I feel you. Uh, it's, uh, you know, one, one promises you and uh, doesn't deliver. The other says, uh, you know, fuck you and doesn't deliver. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't see much difference between the two wings of the corporate party of America here mm-hmm. in terms of uh, workers benefiting from them. Uh, the, the Democrats will throw a few crumbs. They'll, they'll, they'll let you have a voice in appointing uh, uh, a couple of positions at the National Labor Relations Board or something like that, right? Uh, but uh, the, the board seems to be a powerful tool to uh, motivate marginally, people to stay in line. Marginally, yeah. yeah it, it can make a difference uh, sometimes in elections, right? Uh, Pascal, Trump becomes president. What happens for labor, in your opinion? Oh, uh, I don't see it being very good for labor. I mean, Trump being the kind of guy who wants to contract with private corporations to bust out even his own um, workers at his uh, at his uh, casinos doesn't strike me as someone who will be willing to negotiate with labor. But um, I don't see it being a positive. I don't see Trump being, but I mean, again, we're stuck in this conundrum, right? When we have this yeah. kind of really kind of zero-sum game politics in this country. What are we offering working class people as an option to really realize a politics where their answers can be met in terms of what they want to see done. Particularly after all of this, all this time we saw talking about unions all this fall and the great union activity we saw. Yeah. But where was that union activity, right? I mean, we saw that the Teamsters, um, a lot of the union activity we talk about is kind of in with the, the service sector with Starbucks. And that's just like one chain out of a gajillion chains and people get kind of caught up in my opinion of the kayfabe of even Starbucks and unionizing. They're not reporting profits going down because of it. They cl- they've been closing stores. And I know this from people that worked very high up inside for well over 10 years because they've built out way too fast. And it almost feels like people get excited when they go oh, Starbucks closed the store because they were forming a union. It's like, do you really think that's why they closed the store? That's one of the reasons, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and is it hurting them if they do it? Not, well, how many uh, stores have joined, uh, have voted for a union? There's hundreds, right? I think. Mm-hmm. I haven't followed it. There's hundreds of them, but n- none of them have a contract yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, and, and you, you're not going to, it's going to be very difficult to get a contract store by store or even in the city grouping. You know, you, you need a national agreement. Uh, and for that, you need legislation, uh, but you're not going to get it from the Democrats. No, 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 no. I mean the same thing. Look at Amazon and uh, you know their their warehouses. You go after them one by one. Uh, well, they just, just ship the uh, 
production to a new warehouse somewhere else nearby, right? Well, they have a horrible one uh, by me here in uh, Tijuana. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of it where they literally put a warehouse in the middle of one of the pop-up. It's going to sound kind of mean, like shanty towns. Um, so there's literally people on the sides of the warehouse that live in houses that look like they were put together by pallets and like driftwood. And there's just a massive Amazon warehouse just all around them. Insane. Amazon gives no Fs. Um, the last super chat is directed to you, Dr. Jack. Uh, I don't know if you can read that. Uh, Dr. Rasmus, are stats much like these hoes as they are not loyal? Yes or no? And thoughts? What was that? First question? Are stats uh, just not loyal to the, the people reading them? Stats being Statistics. loyal? Yeah. Uh, I don't understand how stats are loyal. Uh, can you clarify that? What you mean by I'm that? just read. I this isn't my question. This is a question <laughs> from a viewer. So, stats are not loyal. So stats are not loyal. Uh, I'm sorry. I I would be just throwing some words out there. Loyal stats, uh, accurate stats. Is that maybe to the person? Who's uh, yeah. 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 Yes yeah. or no? Yeah. Well, I would I would say um, it's not that they're lying. It's not that the statistics are purposely intentionally lying. Uh, it's that uh, when you make certain assumptions and apply those assumptions, you can get pretty much the statistic you want. Right? Just change your assumptions and you know tweak your methodology, and you'll come up with a number. Uh, and even that, as I've said, uh, you know, the government statistics, uh, if you cherry pick them, you know, you can find what you want. It doesn't mean that there's other statistics that contradict what you're saying. I mean, that's like, you know, that's why in my last article I said, well, you know, why, why are government economic statistics like the Bible? Yeah. Right. Because you find whatever you want in it. Right? It's mm. not that the government's lying. It's just that, you know. Look deeper, and you'll find something that's uh, not with the spinning on the media. Well, I guess that answers your question, Dizzle McFizzle. Look deeper into the statistics and the hose, and you'll find something yeah. deeper and more meaningful. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, you know, be loyal to your intention, right? There you go. In the hose. Uh, Dr. Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us today. Wherever you guys are listening or watching the show, there are links in the description to Dr. Jack's articles and Dr. Jack's website where you can read his work. Also, you can find his appearances. Uh, there's a really good uh, appearance he had. Uh, was it a couple days ago, Dr. Jack? Gee, there's so many of them. I, I'm, I'm losing <laughs> Yeah, there was one a couple days ago. Ooh. I think there was one a couple days ago that's up, and uh, I'll put a link up to that as well in the description for the audio-only podcast. As we are leaving, we will be heading into the champagne room. Uh, if you guys enjoy what we do here on This Is Revolution podcast, definitely please hit a yeah, like. I, I would say uh, just follow me on Twitter, at drjackrasmus. You know, I comment quite a bit day-to-day -day developments, economic and political. 
or my blog, jackrasmus.com, where you'll find, uh, you know, my interviews and my articles. There you go. That's where you can find me. You can also find his books on his website as well. Uh, very good reading. Um, I would suggest check all that out. Again, just click the link in the description. If you enjoy what we do here on TIR, definitely uh, become a patron. Make sure we can continue to bring you this type of in-depth programming. Uh, patreon.com slash bitter lake presents for as little as two dollars a month or thirty dollars for the year can all be yours if you're listening on apple if you subscribe you can get access to the champagne room as well it's as simple as that please hit like and subscribe on your way out once again thank you dr jack thank you m Toussaint, for making sure the show could go on as i'm having power issues here in storm-ridden mexico Anytime. And we will see some of you in the champagne room. And we are. Oh.